Kiddos can go to children's church, and if you've got your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 13. Looking at kingdom parables. Let's pray once more and ask God's help. Father, we're looking at your words, so we ask for you to give us understanding and clarity of mind, illumination by your spirit of what the words mean that the Lord gives us today. We thank you for these great truths. They're wonderful. In his name we pray, amen. It would be an interesting experiment to take a camera and a microphone and walk around the streets of Los Angeles and go up to people and kindly asking, what do you value most? What do you think the answers would be? It would be a pretty interesting thing. I actually had a friend of mine many years ago when I was in... Uh, film school in Columbia College, uh, he did that. He went around. He didn't ask that question, though. He asked, um, who do you live for? That was the question. Who do you live for? Most people said myself. Some people said my family. So there were, there were different answers. But most people said I live for myself. And if you ask people what they value most, I imagine people would say family, um, things like that. People without close family might say they value their health, uh, maybe friends. Some might say their job, if they like it, and it pays the bills. Patriotic folks would say liberty. Um, I think the percentages would change dramatically if they had in their hand a winning lottery ticket worth $300 million. And then if you, if you happen to catch them at that moment, you said, what do you value most? A lot of people would say, yeah, they'd go, this little baby right here, that's what I value. When great riches are at stake, even if they're just possible, even if they're just maybe coming your way, most people will go pretty far to obtain them. Sometimes during, turning to criminality, uh, other times just taking incredible risks. I was, um, my wife's reading through the gold rush uh, books about people coming across here for the gold rush right now. And, um, you know, the California gold rush totally changed the state. 300,000 people came here uh, during just a few years from 1848 to 1855 and um, 300,000 people. That doesn't sound like a lot maybe today, but um, that was a lot in the 1800s, you know? On the mere chance, and they came from all over the world, on the mere chance that they might get rich, most of whom never did, right? They left everything. Gold is what they valued most. It was a rush indeed for treasure. You know when the gold rush started, San Francisco had a population of 200 people. And in six years it was 30,000. I mean, that's amazing. It really it changed the world. The, the, the desire for treasure and riches. So people will do a lot for the things they value. And today we're going to look at the most valuable thing you can find on earth. We've been looking at kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Parables are stories or word pictures used of common things about um, life on earth to explain the kingdom of heaven, uh, God's kingdom. So we've looked at four parables so far. We've saw, we saw in the first parable the manner in which the kingdom will grow by the word being sown on different kinds of soil or hearts, human hearts. Then we saw a parable about how the enemy is going to try to corrupt the kingdom and plant tares among the wheat and do his destructive thing. Last time we saw how it will grow 
extensively and intensively, that numerically and geographically it's going to be vast and um, go throughout the whole world and it will have a power to transform lives that will be very evident for those who are in that kingdom. And the two parables we're going to look at today have a similar theme. They're both about the kingdom's worth, the value of it. So Jesus uses two illustrations for the same thing, based, uh, probably because different people will identify more with one scenario versus the other scenario. They're a little bit different, but they're very, very similar. And um, so let's consider the, the worth of the kingdom. Do you ever stop to think that the kingdom of God, it actually answers some of the most pressing questions that people can have about life, you know, like philosophical questions, you know, big questions. I mean, serious people, the, the philosopher types, have always asked questions about worth and value, like what has the most value and what should good men pursue? What should human beings pursue that has the highest value? It's a human being's task, actually, to find out what's most valuable and to pursue that or to honor that or to conform themselves to that. So uh, what is worth and what is value? You've got to start with questions like that, like really simple ones, you know. How do we measure value? It's, is it entirely subjective or is there a true objective highest good for all people? Those are the kind of questions philosophers ask. And at the most base level, I think what people value is the thing they desire the most, right? That's what they value. People that desired gold left everything to come to California to try to find it, a lot of it, at least enough to make them incredibly wealthy. So if we want something, we give it value. There's sort of an inherent thing there, and we'll take risks for it. We might even uh, struggle and kill for it. So uh, if you think back to the gold rush, that's how people were behaving. And if nobody wanted it, if, if you can just gold generally, if nobody wanted it, how valuable is it really? I mean, you can fill teeth with it. You can make pretty ornaments with it, but that's about it. Even if you look at history, you go to some museum where they have like things people made 4,000 years ago out of gold. It wasn't a lot of tools. It was mostly decorate, decorative things to wear. And um, people just agreed that it was valuable, you know? As, as a coin when money started coming into existence. But a philosopher would ask, what's truly valuable? I mean, we can agree that gold is valuable because there's not much of it and we decided it's precious, even though it, in itself it really isn't all that precious. But um, we've decided it's precious. But a, a philosopher says, what's truly valuable? Is there a difference between what is truly inherently valuable and what people believe is valuable, like gold? So that actually is one of the most important questions in philosophy and something we should probably ask. So a philosopher would say, or a wise man would say, you should treasure what is truly valuable. Not just what everybody thinks is valuable, but what is, you should find out what's truly valuable and treasure that thing. A fool pursues things that are not truly valuable, right? That person would be foolish to do that. He treasures the wrong things. So the, we're working our way down to these fundamental questions. What is the true good? What's the highest good? What inherently, objectively has the highest value? Well, I'll bet you can guess Jesus' answer. Because we're going to talk about it right now, but we've already been there. Here we go. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven 
is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found and which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is a really short parable, really simple. And there's a second one, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So these are two stories about finding something that people regard as a very high value. Now remember, this isn't about, it's not about treasure in the field and it's not about a pearl, right? These are representative. What does Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is like this. The fact that Jesus chooses to tell two stories about the value of the kingdom makes us want to think about what makes these stories special. Why are they slightly different? Because the first story, I think, appeals more to the common person, every man, just us, people like us. The guy scraping by to have a secure life, have enough to eat, provide for his family, have some lodging, some roof over his head, maybe a little bit of extra. He's not searching. Did you notice the first guy isn't looking for treasure? He literally stumbles over it, you know? He finds it. It's like, it's like boys, when you, uh, at least when I was a kid, I don't know if people still think that way, but um, finding pirate treasure was like the coolest thing that could happen to you if you're a little boy. And you just want to believe that pirates lived where you lived, even if you lived in Indiana like I did. <laughs> See, these pirates landed and they traveled all the way to Indiana and they buried treasures somewhere in the woods and I'm, I'm going to find it. Like, and girls dream about, what do they dream about? Really, I'm a princess. And my parents aren't really my parents. They, I, I was given to them as a child and I'm going to discover someday that I really belong in the palace and th that kind of stuff, you know. All those kind of things. Maybe, maybe it'll happen. Poor Americans, even some of you middle class Americans dream of that, that ticket, that $300 million lotto thing going on, right? So some people play that all the time. Poorer people tend to really buy more lottery tickets, interestingly enough. It's a good way to soak the poor for the government to do that. But in Jesus' day, finding a treasure in a field was actually something that could happen. Now, it's rare, just like finding pirate treasure is rare. There are pirate treasures somewhere. I haven't found one. But it could have happened because ancient people didn't have banks and uh, they, they buried things. They did do that. In fact, Irish farmers even today um, know that somewhere underground there might be a hoard and a hoard is what you do when the Vikings come and they're raiding your area and you take everything valuable and you bury it in a peat bog somewhere. And then you might be killed or driven off and, uh, and nobody ever knows you put it there. And so some poor guy's going through the field digging up peat to go burn in his oven in his house or whatever or planting a crop or something and comes across it. And that's happened several times in, in modern times. So uh, you, it could really happen. So anyway, in Jesus' story, this man isn't looking for a treasure. He stumbles upon it. Maybe it was exposed by the weather or erosion or something like that. But he's not on land that he owns. He's on somebody else's land. So he starts making an inquiry about whose property it is. And he finds out that this field is for sale. And there's, there's no indication that anybody knows that there's a treasure there. In fact, it says he hides it. So if it would, let's say it was exposed by the weather or something, he buries it again. Now, he's not a thief. So he, he could have stolen it, but he wants to do it legally. So he buys the, the field. He, he makes an inquiry, finds out nobody knows about the treasure. He, but the price for the field itself is kind of high for him. He's just a regular guy, you know. It'll literally take everything he owns to buy the field. So he'll have to sell everything. Would you do it? 
should he do it? Well, Jesus says he does it with joy. So he's happy to do it. It's not like, oh, should I sell my car and buy this field that has this treasure in it? No, it's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So he's, he's very, he doesn't agonize over it. He, he runs to make it happen. The point is, he's really get glad to give everything he has because what he will gain is so much more than he has. It's much more valuable than everything he has. So compared to all he owns, this treasure is way better, way better. So he can let go of his current stuff to have that, and he does it joyfully. So in the end, he's going to have much, much more. Are we talking about treasures and fields? The kingdom of heaven is like. So that's the treasure. That's the treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Take everything we just said, and here's the king speaking about his kingdom. The kingdom of God, he says, is worth it. Even if you have to give up everything to be in the kingdom of God, it's worth it because it's way more valuable than what you have. It's like the treasure hidden in the field. It's worth having even if it costs everything. I know people throw that treasure away all the time, the kingdom of God treasure. People do that all the time. They toss it for something fleeting, some minor thing, some fleeting pleasure. And that is because they don't see that the kingdom of God has value. They don't get it. They're clueless about it. It's just that simple. They don't see value in it. They're blind to it. If you think about the first parable here, the parable of the soils in in Matthew 13, you'll remember that the soils represent different kind of people that hear the word of God, right? There's four kinds of soils. The gospel of the kingdom goes out. Only the good soil receives it and produces fruit out of it. And Jesus described that hearer as the man who hears the word and understands it. And it bears fruit. What's he understand about it? It's valuable. It's precious. Being in the kingdom of God, being forgiven by God, having, knowing that God entered humanity to pay for my sins, to bring me to himself, to reconcile to me, there's nothing more valuable than I cannot think of anything that even compares to that. I can't even imagine anything that compares to that. Anything, anything on earth or anything beyond. So that person gets it. The other soils that represent human hearts, they all come up short. They don't get it. The hard soil doesn't get it at all. He doesn't even understand it. The rocky soil has no roots, remember? And it's just an emotional thing. Oh, that sounds really good. But as soon as trouble comes, they're, they're gone. It wasn't valuable enough to suffer for. And the soil infested with thorns is easily distracted from the value of the treasure. So they don't really see it as valuable worries, riches, worldly pleasures Jesus talks about. He listens, but there's other voices and he listens to them even more because what they're offering is more valuable to him, more of a concern. But the good soil, he understands. This is the most valuable thing, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. So he gets it. The kingdom of God is not something that gets him through the night or gives morals to his children or it's a nice way to live. It's, it's the kingdom of God is God's glorious rule 
over all of his creation and it's offered graciously to a completely unworthy person like myself, that's a treasure. And there's no treasure like it. It's not just something good or kind of cool or it's everything. It's the answer. It's the answer to all my questions, right? About what is truly valuable, the thing I should pursue the most eagerly. It's the most, it's the place most deserving of my highest affections, that's for sure, and my loyalty. So this parable of the treasure in the field is telling us about its worth, its value, and what quality of mind marks those who will embrace the kingdom of God, those who see its worth and are determined to get it, to have it, joyfully, letting other things go, to pursue it. Nothing is more valuable than the kingdom. Nothing can compare to having a place in that kingdom. Not my house, not my relationships, not, my, not even my family is comparable to that. And that's what Jesus meant in Matthew 10.37, way back in Matthew 10. Remember when we were there? How long ago was that? Matthew 10.37, He who loves father more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, but he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. That's exactly the same principle we're talking about here. The kingdom of God is the highest treasure, the, the greatest, the thing of greatest value, even more than everything else on earth, even any person on earth that you love. It's more valuable than that. So he's talking about a scale of values and what's the highest value. Family is great, but it's temporary. It's temporary. Nothing compares to Christ, the King and Savior. So as far as life on earth goes, only one thing we enjoy here will last forever and that's our relationship with him. That's the kingdom of God. That's what's gonna last forever. So just as the man sells all that he has to have this treasure and can let everything else go by the wayside. He's completely willing to do that because nothing compares. In the same way, if something is incompatible with the kingdom, we can cast it aside. It's not worthy. It's not worthy of the kingdom. We don't have to have that. So this man sold everything he had. Everything else he let go to buy that field. It cost him everything, but it was his joy to give it up because that treasure in that field is so much better. Now, some Christians get confused on this point because, um, well, here's the thinking. I mean, this guy had to pay everything to get that field, right? And we're always told salvation is a free gift. It costs nothing, right? It's free. And it is. Freely given. Freely given. But here's the thing. A man won't receive that gift unless he understands how valuable it is. If he doesn't understand how valuable it is, he might receive it like the shallow soil or the thorny soil, but not the good soil. He doesn't receive it unless he understands it. A man won't receive the gift of salvation in Christ unless he understands how worthy it is, unless he sees how valuable it is to belong to Christ the King and how great his sacrifice is for us. If you don't understand that, you don't want it. So it is free to us if we want it, but it's not free 
period, it cost Christ a lot, right? The whole point is he paid what it cost, so it has this incredible value. And for us, it's freely offered, but unless we see that value, we will not receive it for ourselves. So to become God's child, to embrace him and forsake everything else for him is central because you have to see how valuable it is. Every act of receiving the mercy of a holy God and king is to repudiate everything that stands above him in our hearts. It's to say no to those things because he, now I get it, he is the most valuable thing. So to see the supreme worthiness of Christ is to devalue, devalue everything else by comparison. There's things you just have to let go. One, one thing is yourself. Self-righteous people can't have the kingdom, right? Because they don't see the value in his righteousness. They, they believe in their own righteousness. So you can't keep that. You gotta let that go. You cannot receive grace if you think you're good enough to go to heaven. I don't, I don't need that. A lot of people say that. I don't, I don't need Jesus. What do I need him for? I, I'm, I'm a good person. To acknowledge the need of grace is to know for certain that you're not good enough. That's an easy one for me. I know I'm not. Pride has to go. The Bible says God is opposed to the proud. You can't hold on to pride since receiving the kingdom requires you, requires your understanding and your acknowledgement that you are an offender against heaven. You've been, a, you, you've been a rebel against a perfectly good king and you've got to acknowledge that. There's no pride in that. So now you have to kneel before him and ask for mercy from him. And this king reads thoughts and motives of those that are kneeling before him. So you can't kneel with your body and think you're really great and worthy in your heart. You can't think that. Because he knows. So pride and self-righteousness have to go if we're gonna enter the kingdom. Sinful pleasures and practices, we have to put those in perspective. A, a, a humbled rebel does not get up from kneeling before his merciful king who is so gracious to him and then go out and plan the next rebellion, right? Now a person might guilefully bow the knee to a king and then go out and plan the next rebellion, but if he's got a humble heart, he doesn't do that, he never does that. If his heart's right before the king when he sought the mercy of the king and he understands that the kingdom is a kingdom of goodness and righteousness and justice, that inherently leads that humbled rebel now made whole and restored to hate the things that offend the king. Unholy things, foul things, wicked things. Sin becomes a hateful burden to the kingdom citizen and we still find it in ourselves but hopefully we're horrified by what we find in us and come to him again for mercy and grace and forgiveness. You can't say you love Christ and relish breaking commandments. You can't do that. They just don't go together. So to possess the kingdom, things have to go. Things have to go. James Montgomery Boyce asks, do you find that hard? Do you draw back? Is that too great a price to pay for salvation? If so, you're not the man in Christ's parable who finds treasure and sells all that he has to, to have it. You're not the merchant who trades off everything to possess that great pearl. 
You've not even properly seen the value of what you are rejecting. He's right. To cling to the world and the sins of the world and to cling to vanity and pride and all of that, that just means you've stumbled on a treasure of vast wealth and you decided you didn't want it. I've got better stuff. I've got better stuff than that. I'm going to hang on to this. So the man in the parable finds the treasure and he takes action to obtain it. He wants it more than anything in the whole world because he knows how valuable it is. And the only one who wants peace with God, only the one who really wants peace with God, more than anything in the world, will take hold of that kingdom. That's the only person that'll have it. He's going to act. There are plenty of people sitting in American church pews who don't view Christ's sacrifice or the forgiveness of sins as something really inherently valuable. They don't see it. They figure they're fine, the cross and all that stuff, it's sort of overdone. Talk about it all the time. People who regard the cross of Christ as a a small thing in their hearts don't see the greatest treasure as a treasure. It's not valuable to them. And they won't dream of making an effort to obtain it. They wouldn't sell all they have or cast things aside for that, their pride and their self-righteousness. Let's look at the second parable again, the pearl of great price, a little bit different. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this guy's a merchant. He isn't like the man who accidentally came across this treasure in the field. This merchant is doing what? He's actively looking for pearls. So he's looking for something valuable. It's his business to do that. So the one man wasn't looking for it, but he found it. And the other man found it as a result of a long and faithful quest. And that's how life is. Did anybody here stumble into the kingdom? Because some of you did, right? You weren't thinking about it. You weren't planning on it. Somebody came along and shared the gospel with you. You weren't on some great quest for truth. But by God's grace, you went, yeah, that's wonderful, that's wonderful, and you, you found Jesus Christ. You, you didn't have a big plan to do that. You weren't spending years pursuing the truth. Wasn't even on your mind, maybe. No epic quest. But you heard the gospel, you heard it, and it became very real to you. Suddenly, church isn't a horrible bore. It's something you kind of look forward to. God's word is precious to you. It just sort of happens, right? Right? It's a work of God's grace, a gift of God. It's treasure in the field. That's what that is. Other people are more like the merchant. They are on a quest for the truth. I have a very clear 40-year-old memory of talking in the hall in, in Columbia College, and this guy from Oregon was talking with me, and he perceived that there was some sort of moral framework in my life. It's really just what they call Indiana nice. But that's, that's what he thought. It was some kind of morality thing. And, and he goes, are you a born-again Christian? And I very knowledgeably said, what's that? <laughs> and that began a conversation that led me back to a church, a very different church than the one I was raised in. This church, like, taught the Bible. Bible teaching church, a place where I heard the word of God. And I, I was so excited, I couldn't get enough of it. And Christ got me. You know, he laid hold of me. That might seem like a, a treasure experience because I wasn't looking for it at that moment, but in reality, that was my pearl. That was my pearl. 
I was seeking hard. I really, I, I was always a seeker ever since I was a young child. If you look at things I wrote and when I was very young from scripts to letters to all kinds of stuff, it was obvious that I was on a quest for years for the truth. And that's the story of the pearl. It's a man on a quest. I, just, I wasn't just going along. I wanted to know the truth of the world, what life was really all about, who God was. I wanted to know those things. And I was drawn to Jesus, but I didn't get it. I didn't grasp the whole picture. I, I mean, I knew he was a wonderful person and I admired him and all of that. But I didn't get my depravity. I didn't get his sufficiency for my need. The whole reality of the kingdom of God, I didn't get that, but I learned it from the Bible. I wanted to know. Some people just kind of do life. They're just going along and God makes a divine appointment for them and boom, someone shares the gospel with them and they're there. Treasure! I found the treasure. Others seek and reflect and study and read and listen and then they find it. The kingdom of God. God incarnate in the savior of sinners. God opens their heart after a long quest, a search. I'm sure I've mentioned Mortimer Adler here before, but he's kind of one of my favorite people. He was a man of great, he's passed away now, but he was a man of great academic accomplishment, a real philosopher. He made his mark as a young man. When the whole educational world was going kind of crazy in the 30s and 40s, he was, uh, he was standing on the side of a traditional, classical, um, truth-based education. Just believing in truth is a big deal in the 20th century, and especially now, because people don't believe in that anymore. But he did, and he thought education should be seeking the truth, and he believed in a liberal education for all people. Um, kind of a great man in that. He was the chairman, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Older people remember that. Now it's probably on your phone. But if you go to my house, there's like, there's one in my, on this bookshelf. And uh, it's one of the first things we bought on credit when we were young, a young married couple. And uh, oh, we can earn some credit with this. And uh, I never look at it anymore. But um, he, was, he was the editor, he was the chief chairman of the editors of the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica. He was also the editor of the, another set that's right next to that at my house called The Great Books of the Western World. It's all the great books of the Western World and he edited that and he wrote a 10 volume syntopicon examining the, all the great ideas that you can study while you're reading The Great Books of the Western World. That's the guy that wrote all that stuff, Mortimer Adler. I mean, he's not a little schlep guy. He's like major, major guy. He was the director of the Institute for Philosophical Research in Chicago, University of Chicago. Major player. Regular people had never heard of him and until he started writing popular books when he was in his 60s. In fact, he said, I didn't feel like I really understood anything until I was in my 60s. I mean, this guy had been doing academic stuff his whole life, but he didn't feel like he had anything really substantive to share until he was in his 60s. So he started writing books. He wrote about 20 books. One of his most popular was called Aristotle for Everybody because he loved Aristotle. And he was excited that like little groups of uh, laymen, workers, plumbers, electricians would gather around and study Aristotle for Everybody. That just made his little heart thrilled, you know? Just loved that. But he became famous, and I first heard of him when he was on, Bill Moyers had a show in the 80s, 1981, called The Six Great Ideas. And it was six episodes, and it was Bill Moyers and Mortimer Adler and talking about the six great ideas. And he broke the six great ideas into two groups. Um, he said, the ideas we judge by, truth, goodness, and beauty. These are the classical ideas, right? 
and the, the ideas we act on, liberty, equality, and justice. And it was a great show. I, I was just totally immersed in it. And I was a new Christian. I was a pretty young Christian, only a few years old in the Lord. And, but he said in the show, he said, now, these six ideas are really important, but these, this isn't the greatest idea. He said the greatest idea is God. And he'd already written a book on God, so he didn't include that in the six great ideas because he'd already done it. That was the only reason. But he wrote a book called How to Think About God, and the subtitle was A Guide for 20th Century Pagans. And he was talking about himself because he was irreligious. He was raised Jewish, but it didn't mean anything to him, and he, uh, he was irreligious. But the more I listened to him, the more I was sure. I said, this guy is aiming at Christianity. He's moving in that direction. You can just... I just felt like that from everything he was saying. For one thing, because he really believed there was truth. And he wasn't a Christian. He was a, a kind of a philosophical theist. In other words, he, he spent all this time, that's what his book about God was about, crafting this really careful argument that God really exists. But he didn't worship that God. He didn't love that God. He didn't serve that God. It, he was just trying to make a philosophical proof that God exists. And he believed that God existed. But he didn't know him. But I thought he was getting close just because I could see where his train of thought was going. And, uh, but I also knew this. He might be on that path, but, but you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says, the God of this world, bl Satan, blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they, that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, which is the, the great pearl. And Satan blinds people's minds to that. So I know this guy's working his way intellectually towards that, but... Satan could be blinding his mind. So I actually prayed for him several times back then. And, and I, then I lost track of him and never knew what happened to him. I got a couple of his books. I really enjoyed them, but didn't. But then, I, then a few years later, I got a book called Philosophers Who Believe. And each chapter was about a different, like, professional philosopher, major thinker who believes in Christ. He was in there. <laughs> he was in there. Had a whole chapter on how he came to Christ. I was, like, totally blown away. So 50 years of thinking about God... And many years, it turned out in his testimony, his wife was an Episcopalian and he went to her church and they raised their kids in the Episcopal church and um, he, he was even asked by the pastor there after he wrote that book about God to preach from his pulpit as an unbeliever about the proofs for the existence of God and he actually had done that in that church. Uh, but he didn't believe, you know. Well, what changes a guy like that? Well, he, he, he got really ill and he had a very prolonged illness. It lasted for months. He was bedridden for months. And all of these influences were there in his life. And uh, he loved, because he loved Aristotle, he loved Thomas Aquinas. So he read the Summa Theologica and all that stuff. But, so he knew Christianity in, intellectually. Um, but the pastor came and prayed with him. And while the pastor was praying for him to get better, he said he just believed. He said, he said, God's grace opened his heart to believe in the God of the pastor that was praying for him. And he came to Christ. And then he started giving sermons from a biblical point of view as a, as a believing philosopher. So, he really couldn't explain it. He just said it was God's grace. So some people stumble on a treasure. Some people spend their life seeking the truth. And then they find the pearl of great price. I mean, they, they know what they're doing. And this guy knew what he was seeking for something and he was chasing after it. So whether the kingdom of God is found in your childhood or after many decades of searching or somewhere in between, when a person deeply sought the truth, whether they did that or whether they just happened upon it, 
those who find the kingdom share certain things. And this parable, there's, there's common things between these two kinds of people. One is that they both recognized the value of what they found, right? The guy said, this is a treasure. The guy that just stumbled. But the guy that knew what he was doing, this is a valuable pearl. They both knew the value of it. Both men were determined to have it, to have this great valuable thing. Each one sold everything to make the purchase, to get it. And both men got it. It became theirs. They acquired this precious treasure. So for these men, nothing could be valued higher than having what? The kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like this. So when God opens our eyes, our scale of values changes dramatically and suddenly we see Jesus as the most valuable thing there is, King Jesus and his kingdom. That was Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter three, remember? He, he lists all of his credentials as a Jew among Jews, a religious Pharisee, blameless by the standard of his people. And then he says in Philippians 3, 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. I've been following very closely all those Christians in China right now, Chinese believers that are going to prison. And just another story I read this week about that. And they know they're losing everything. The, the one I was reading this week, they said, should, should we wear our dress-up clothes to go to church today or should we wear clothes that we'll be comfortable in in prison? Can you imagine making that decision? They said, we better wear the comfortable clothes. And they did. They got arrested this week. You know what real treasure is? It's, it's knowing Jesus savingly and being willing to forsake all other things for him. He is our God, he's our king, he's the only redeemer of men that there is. It's knowing that because of the cross of Christ, the weight of our sin, the guilt of our sin, the penalty of our sin is removed. That's the greatest treasure. It's knowing that in Christ we have God as a father, a tender father, not a judge. It's knowing that in Christ our bond with God is eternal, it's unshakable. It's the one thing that's going to last forever. What does Paul say? Romans 8, 38, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What then would we not give up to obtain this there's people here in this room that aren't seeking it enough. They're not, they don't see the value of it. You need to see it. Ask God to open your eyes to the value of the kingdom of God for you. You mean give up my freedom? Only the freedom to be evil? Only the freedom to be a sinner? That's the only freedom you have to give up. We only lose the freedom to be separated from God when we come to God. Actually, to belong to God is really the highest freedom because we're reconciled to the purpose for our existence, which is to be rightly related to him. We're actually made for God. Did you know that? You weren't made to be thrown on a planet. You were made to have a relationship with the living God and re represent him on this planet. Rebellion is a bondage 
That's a bondage. That's the worst kind of bondage. It takes a beautiful thing like freedom and corrupts it, it twists it into autonomy. You know what autonomy means, that word? A law unto oneself. That's what autonomous means. That only works if you are inherently good, but human beings are not inherently good. Look at the world around you, read the paper, experience life, look in your own heart. There's not a lot of good there. Look at the world. Exhibit A through infinity. Human life, human history. Human beings are not inherently good. And what we're being asked to do is to bring our lives under his lordship as our king. And that's what separates authentic faith from sort of pretense. It's the freedom to be what we should be, not just what we want to be, because we're autonomous. Anything the world has to offer just grows dim compared to the glory of Christ and his kingdom. That's what makes it possible to sell everything for the pearl of great price because the treasure, the king, the king and his kingdom are worth it all. I've got just a couple of minutes. Let me, I want to read something for you. Chuck Swindoll wrote this a long time ago. I thought it was amusing then and I'm going to read it to you now. So it's kind of a modern story about a guy buying a pearl. It goes into the store. I want this pearl, how much is it? Well, it's very expensive. Yeah, but how much? Well, a, a very large amount. Do you think I can't buy it? Oh, if anyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have. Think about it, make up my mind. All right, I'll buy it. Well, what do you have? Let's write it down. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000, uh, what else? That's all, that's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few hundred dollars in my pocket. How much? We start digging, let's see, 30, 40, I got $120, that's fine. Write it down. What else do you have? Well, nothing, that's it. Where do you live? In my house? Yes, I have a house. The house too, write it down. You mean I have to live in my camper? Oh. <laughs> You've got a camper? That's mine. What else? Look, you're going to make me sleep in my car. <laughs> you have a car? Two of them. Both become mine. Both cars. What else? Look, you already have my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? Are you alone in this world? No, I have a wife and children. Two children. Wife, two children. They're mine too. I've got nothing left. I'm all alone now. Suddenly the seller says, oh, I almost forgot. There's you. You yourself. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. And then the seller says, and here's the point. Now listen, he says, I will allow you to use all of these things for the time being. But don't forget that they're mine, just as you are mine. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because now I'm the owner. That's, that's a description of the Christian life. That's it. God owns you and everything else. And it's his. And when it's his time to use some of your stuff, you better fork it over for whatever purpose he has for it. We're under new management. People under new management. And we're, we're not our own. We're not our own. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. So... The things our Lord doesn't like, we shun those things. What he approves, we possess only according to his 
grace and mercy and largesse and permission. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. And you can do that without fear of loss because we have this incredible promise in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And when you believe that and you've found the highest good that there is and you possess the greatest treasure, you know that that's eternal and will be forever and nothing will shake it or break it ever. And you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. You're so gracious and kind and we're unworthy. And that we are so unworthy and you love us so much is the greatest reality of the world. And that you've accomplished our redemption through the cross to bring us back to you so that you can love on us, love on us for eternity and we can love you in return forever. Open our eyes to this treasure and help us to re- seek it with joy if we haven't found it yet. In Christ's name we pray, amen.